0: Produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon, this is Free Culture Radio. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Harm Reduction International has released a report entitled Aid for the War on Drugs, which follows overseas development aid that's being spent on policing and drug control around the world. The report calls on governments and donors to divest from punitive and prohibitionist drug control regimes, which undermine their other health and human rights commitments, and invest in programs which prioritize community, health, and justice. Here's Naomi Berkshine, Executive Director of Harm Reduction International.
1: My name is Naomi Berkshire and I'm the Executive Director of Harm Reduction International. We are an international NGO which works to use data and advocacy to promote harm reduction and drug policy reform and to demonstrate how rights-based, evidence-informed responses to drugs contribute to healthier, safer societies. Today we meet to launch our new Divest Invest campaign, calling on governments and donors to divest from the drug war and invest in programs that prioritise community health and justice. Over $100 billion is spent on drug law enforcement each year. The last count, investment in harm reduction, totaled $131 million, nearly 5% the estimated resource need in low- and middle-income countries. Decades of this punitive approach to drugs has not decreased drug use or drug sales. It hasn't helped reduce drug-related harms. In fact, we have decades of evidence clearly showing the harms caused by punitive drug policies. Preventable overdose deaths, state-sanctioned killings, and the spread of HIV and viral hepatitis are just some of the consequences of these punitive policies. And I want to underline here that these are not the consequences of drug use, but the consequences of drug laws and drug law enforcement. The criminalization of drugs fuels stigma and discrimination, and this particularly impacts people from marginalised communities. These punitive drug laws uphold racist and colonial structures, Marginalised and racialized communities are disproportionately targeted and affected by these punitive po- laws and policies. With our new campaign, we are calling on governments and donors around the world to stop wasting vast amounts of money on punitive responses to drugs and to divest from the ineffective and unjust war on drugs. By doing this, we can free up essential funds to invest in programmes which prioritise community health. And justice. And this includes harm reduction as well as other social and community programs that benefit marginalized people and lead to healthier, safer societies. HRI wants to build a broad and diverse coalition of people working in allied social justice movements and together call on governments and donors to divest from punitive approaches and invest in community health and justice. We've been tracking the funding available for harm reduction services for 15 years now, and this new campaign is the latest iteration of our work calling for governments and donors to invest in the right places. It is problematic that wealthy countries exert influence over drug policy in lower middle-income countries via funding, by the provision of resources and technical assistance, and the promotion of prohibition. One of the ways in which this happens is through international aid. Which brings me to our new report, developed with investigative journalist Claire Probos. Both drug policy and international development have colonial roots that have been shaped over decades by powerful and wealthy countries, in particular the US and European countries. Both of these systems, drug policy and international development, are in urgent need of decolonizing. As part of our continued work to scrutinise fund flows, we found particularly egregious examples... Of the use of public funds as part of International Development or Official Development Assistance, ODA, to fund narcotics control. Funds earmarked to alleviate poverty and contribute to global health goals are being used to support punitive drug law enforcement. In the data we found that this category of aid spending was covering anything from training Brazilian federal police on drug law enforcement, to counter-narcotics training programs, to specialized vehicles for transportation of anti-narcotics police drug detecting dog units, in Iran. International aid is supposed to have an overall effect of reducing poverty and supporting development. It's not rational to fund punitive drug law enforcement and hope for a net positive effect, because decades of experience now show that drug law enforcement decimates attempts to provide health services and fuels human rights violations.
0: That was Naomi Berkshine, Executive Director of Harm Reduction International, speaking at the launch on September 12th of HRI's new report entitled Aid for the War on Drugs. It's an excellent report. There's a lot in there. I realized, however, that before I could really dive into it, I needed to have a better understanding of the whole international development apparatus. So I got in touch with a longtime friend, friend of mine, friend of the show, Sanho Tree. Sanho is a military and diplomatic historian, national security expert, writer, and director of the Drug Policy Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. Okay, so the new report from Power Reduction International has come out. It is entitled Aid for the War on Drugs. And it is, um, it's about how development aid, about a billion dollars over the last 10 years, has been put into so-called narcotics control, police, law enforcement, the kind of stuff that, I mean, I think of, development i think of sanitation i think of roads i think of schools i'm not thinking of of uh, shock batons and uh, better surveillance techniques this is um anyway and and the numbers it's a billion dollars uh, that's like a, i know that's a rounding error at the pentagon um it doesn't sound like much but the gdp the whole gdp of a country like afghanistan is 14 and a half billion dollars so well maybe my uh anyway i need a better understanding I need a better understanding of a lot of things, but but let's let's focus for now on just development assistance and 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 our history of funding police and, and internal security operations in other countries and 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 uh, one of the smartest people I know is Sanho Trees, the uh, director of the Drug Policy Project at the Institute for Policy Studies, and uh, he's on Zoom with me now. Sanho, how you doing? Good, thank you. Um. Okay, so. A billion dollars over 10 years in development aid. Um, it, like I say, in it, obviously something like the, our Pentagon budget is so bloated. It's not a good thing to, um, not a good thing to compare it to, but you know, it, I mean, it just, it, I don't know. It just, I mean, it just doesn't sound like a huge amount of money, but um, it, it is my perspective, how, is what's, I, I think my perspective is off still.
2: A billion dollars is a lot of money. Um, so, we're back in uh, 1999, 2000, um, I was working against a, something called Plan Colombia at the time, uh, of an initiative of the Clinton administration uh, and their tail end. And that was a request for 1.3 billion dollars initially. Uh, we've spent more than uh, 12 billion at this point on on you know drug control uh, efforts in Colombia, but 1.3 billion back 22 years ago was considered a huge amount of money. It was that that made Colombia the third largest recipient of U.S. foreign assistance um, outside of Israel and and Egypt at the time. So that's a lot of money. Um, It's dwarfed now by the kinds of money that are being thrown around because of Afghanistan and all these other things. And, you know, um, so inflation uh, has taken a toll, but that's still an awful lot of money. Um,
0: Yeah. and- I'll throw, let me throw this in here i checked the oecd uh just before we uh, met and their preliminary data for 2022 shows that the united states total of what they call official development assistance was 55.3 billion dollars which they note includes uh support in ukraine as well as increased costs for in donor refugees from afghanistan
2: yeah so uh, but when you talk about that that uh, billion dollars, uh, you know, it's 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 not it's useful to compare it to the Pentagon budget in some ways. Though it's a much smaller microcosm, of course. But when we talk about all that development assistance, a lot of it never leaves the Beltway, for instance. So this is going to be administered through a lot of contractors. Very often, um, we've privatized so many of our functions in this in this government now. And those contractors have their own bottom lines, what they're, uh, you know, uh, they're they're looking to maximize their their profit and, and they get the money, basically. Uh, and then it's up to them to administer how that's spent in country overseas. They're often going to outsource that to their own uh, NGOs, so-called NGOs in, in these developing countries. Um When, you know, the the, the advantage of having tracked Plan Colombia over two decades, two plus decades, is that you begin to see where the money goes uh, for these things. And so much of it is wasted or it's uh, poorly executed, poorly planned. It's top down. It's administered from Washington or from Bogota. They don't listen to the farmers. It, It needs to be farmer led, output oriented. You know, how many farmers did you transition off of coca successfully and for h- over a period of time? Um, how many um, alternative development uh, and tonnage uh, crops did you successfully get to market? Um, not did the farmers comply with all your list of demands? So you got these so-called development experts um, sitting in office, shiny, you know, marble uh, hallways and offices thousands of miles away with their grand plans of what they think development ought to look like in these remote regions in in the Amazon or or rural Colombia. These people, their boots never or rarely ever get muddy. Um, And they don't listen, they're very arrogant very often. They don't listen to the, the farmers, the campesinos, because these farmers know best what grows in their soils, what infrastructure is available in their region to get products to market. They understand when the rainy seasons come and if you decide you're, we should plant this crop and it, the harvest time is you know, coinciding with rainy season, these mud roads are impassable. And I, I spent a lot of time knee deep uh, in mud trying to push vehicles through these jungle roads. Um, and so all these things that that go into making a viable economy in these rural areas um, are very often either ignored um, or um they just they're just clueless uh, about these things and so when it comes time to evaluate these projects they'll blame the farmers they didn't you know the farmer didn't live up to my expectations of my grand plan for their region they never asked you know the farmer do my grand plans fit into your world your life your reality is it even feasible what i'm proposing for you but for the farmers from their perspective they're they're humble cappuccinos very often they don't have a high school education. I've been to these uh, so-called development NGOs in in the Amazon. They've got very often very nice offices, marble floors in the middle of a jungle, Uh, the latest computers, they've got the $800 Eames chairs. um, And here comes a humble campesino in his rubber boots, tracking mud over their floor, um, trying to argue his case. And they treat them with contempt. Um, and if you don't sign the agreement and, and and do what we say, well, then you'll be subje- subjected to eradication police coming in and, and wiping out your farm. Um, and very often they do it anyway. But 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 still, these farmers have no leverage and they're not listened to or taken seriously. And that's why a lot of these things fail. Um, I have been to so many. Alternative development projects funded by USAID, for instance, in Bolivia, in Colombia, where there are basically rusting abandoned hulks in the jungle and years ago i thought of of making a coffee table book to demonstrate the 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 absurdity of all this and i was going to call it fracasso meaning failure and all it would be would be a photograph of the u.s ambassador on opening day cutting the ribbon to this new development project and with a photo op with the local mayor Uh, and that's what gets presented back to washington to congress yay we did this thing and 18 months later it's abandoned rusting and maybe some of the locals have converted this hulk into i don't know temporary classrooms or, or some other thing uh, but it was not doing what it was meant to do it's not processing uh you know yuca flour it's not doing all these other things uh, you know it's not you know processing canning hearts of palm and so but that's that's long after the fact um and you've moved on to the next appropriation cycle uh and that's all water under the bridge but the farmers who are at the, uh, the leading edge of this, you know, they're living on the front lines, that makes a hell of a difference to them in their lives because you're not subjecting them to economic catastrophe and failure. Very often failure they warned would happen and they're also getting blamed for it in the paperwork uh, and you burn them year after year, decade after decade, and I've been doing it for two decades now, and it's very hard to earn their trust the second, third, fourth time around after you do this to them. President Petro is trying to do that in, in Colombia. He's the first progressive president in the history of Colombia. Um, and so I do hope and I do believe he will uh, make a very serious effort in, in making this farmer focused. But uh, it's it's very challenging, just the reality of that. One thing we learned from, you know, the war in Afghanistan and Plan Colombia is that if you drop billions of dollars onto these very you know, underdeveloped countries with not a lot of transparency—they're in the middle of long conflicts. Um, it breeds corruption. It 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 brings the, the the bottom feeders out of the woodwork, you know, uh, to to basically suck up all this money. Uh, and it's a frenzy, feeding frenzy in many in many respects. So I am in favor of giving money to uh, actually helping farmers, but it's got to be done at a rate uh, where these local, um, realities, they have the absorb absorptive capacity to take in that money in a useful, meaningful way, but that's not what Congress deals in. They deal with, you know, top line numbers and the conditionality they impose on that very often is conditions that, you know, are there to cover the arrears of politicians or bureaucrats, and that's not what needs to happen. they need to be held accountable. It, it, the end result should be the farmers. Are the farmers help, being helped by this? I mean, are you getting the, the actual result you intend? We're not asking those kinds of questions because it affects too many people in the, you know who are, who are making lots of money off the existing system. They don't want to rock the boat.
0: This is a conversation with Sanho Tree, director of the Drug Policy Project at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. We'll have more in a moment. You're listening to Free Culture Radio. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Welcome back. Now let's hear the second half of my conversation with Sanho Tree, director of the Drug Policy Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. I suppose uh, what you were describing some of the uh, some of the top-down stuff, some of the, which are doomed to fail. That, I mean, I suppose in some respects that makes it a little easier. To, those failures make it easier to justify um, diverting money from development to uh, into police. That's uh, yeah. I almost think that was deliberate. Yeah.
2: Hmm. <laughs> Yes, and the conditionality they impose on that uh, uh, on this kind of assistance is very often uh, a non-starter from the farmer's point of view. For instance, politicians want to look tough. They say, well, first you have to eradicate all of your illicit plants, destroy your entire coca crop, uh, and grow pineapples instead. Then we'll help you. Well, you have to ask yourself, pineapples can take up to 12 to 18 months to, to, to mature. It takes a square meter of land. Uh, and yet I can buy them in my local supermarket in DC for 299, a pineapple. What kind of margins are the farmers going to make on this? Um, and in those, you know, 18 year and a half, it could take to mature to get it to market. How is the farmer supposed to feed their family in the meantime? Uh, these are things that politicians don't care about. They want to look tough, but they check that box and then the administrators and, the, the so-called NGOs, uh, who, who, who implement these things um you know these are the rules you know uh, our way or the highway um it's an absurd reality um how are the farmers supposed to make this happen you know uh but everyone's boxes are ticked except for the farmers the people that's supposed to help right (laughs) it's not very responsive so there's not a lot of accountability in the long run and that's that's too bad in many ways you know part of me. kind of jokingly thinks that it would be better to take that money those hundreds of millions of dollars and and put them into small bills and throw them out of helicopters over these villages uh, and let it literally rain down on the farmers they know how to allocate that money uh in ways that they need they know you know what the school fees are for their children they know what kind of fertilizers they need and when they need it they know uh all all these things you know uh and and it's it shouldn't be up to these outside so-called experts to parachute in from hundreds or thousands of miles away to tell them uh no you can only spend money this way for that reason or whatever when they don't understand the reality of what uh of these farmers lives ngo by the way one thing Plan colombia and 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 afghanistan did was turn ngo into a four-letter word uh i used to be proud to say i worked for an ngo Right. Because in the U.S., it really means nonprofit, usually. And low salaries are dedicated to the work, yada, yada, yada. You're tax exempt. But NGOs nowadays can also comprise huge development contractors that are in some ways, but much smaller, but in many ways similar to Beltway Bandits, the defense contractors. Right. They, you know, lobby for these. They bid for these contracts. It's up to them to implement it. Most of that money, a lot of that money goes to nice, fat salaries and and office space inside the Beltway. Um, And by the time, you know, it it reaches Bogota, you know, they take their cut. And by the time it reaches the the jungle, you're not left with a whole lot of money. Um, And then when it goes bottom up, they say, well, the farmers didn't comply.
0: I am seeing so many Parallels to the to the drug war and and our approach here that it's it's sort of mind boggling the notion of actually talking to the people who are directly affected, finding out what their real needs are, addressing those you know like like in harm reduction and talking to people who use drugs and finding out their needs and actually addressing those these contractors who um you know the development contractor the 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 equivalent of the Beltway Bandits and the kind of administrators and all the monies that are going into the the, the, the top levels and the treatment industrial complex and all the other things that have grown up around the idea of providing services. It's a great idea. It's a great concept. So, But how much of the money that goes there actually trickles down to the people who are in real need? The notion of sending money to community organizations that are actually at the grassroots, actually on the front lines of all this doing the work, um, is really radical. It's one of the reasons Oregon has gotten into so much trouble, because that's exactly what Measure 110 did. It's giving money directly to organizations that are working. They're actually at the grassroots working directly and delivering the services, just like giving money to people on the ground in those places who are actually getting their boots dirty, delivering services and working with people rather than handing it to some jerks sitting in an office who can write a really good report with just the right number of bullet points.
2: (laughs) And I think it's great that this report comes out of Harm Reduction International and it comes out of the harm reduction space and that experience, that lived experience uh about and, and harm reduction is all about you know, it's basically popular education it's about meeting people where they are not where you insist they ought to be right <laughs> um uh, and that is so basic whether you're talking about development or harm reduction or popular education of any sort all uh, right that ought the you know your bottom line uh, ought to be meeting people where they are because if you're not uh you're you're you're, you're playing with your own okay. fantasies right
0: Hey, I got you on the line. We still have a couple minutes. Uh, what do you got? What's on your radar? What are you working on these days? So
2: uh, I'll be uh, over the next two years doing a lot of work on um, fentanyl and and the supply side of fentanyl. Um, you know, the, dealing with uh, so-called open borders as the Republicans keep screaming uh, and how they need to build a bigger wall and that sort of thing uh, and all the all the silliness around that. Um, and it's going to be a huge election issue in 2024, unfortunately, It's silly as it is. Um, I'll be doing work on cannabis equity, uh, both domestically and internationally. Um, also working on human rights and the intersection with the drug war. So countries like uh, Colombia, Philippines, um, Thailand, Bolivia, et cetera. Uh, and, uh, and a lot of rapid response stuff as well to uh, the various issues of the day. Uh, and, and also helping the uh, uh, Colombia uh, as they forge their their new foreign, their new drug policies.
0: Oh right now the, the, the new president of Colombia. Uh, t- 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 tell me about th- tell me about this guy.
2: So the new president of Colombia inaugurated last year, Gustavo Petro, um, is the first progressive president in Colombia's history. Uh, so it's a very exciting time um, in Colombia and he's got a pretty radical agenda and a lot of that involves finally, uh, tackling the drug war and getting some some basic reforms, and charting new new directions both uh, domestically, and internationally, in drug policy. So it's a it's a lot on his plate, um, and he's tr- simultaneously trying to reform healthcare, pensions, etc. Uh, um, you know, in a very conservative political culture. So uh, a lot of challenges, but also a lot of um, possible opportunities here as well. And he's an old. I actually have known him since uh, over twenty years now, and in fact, in two thousand and seven, I nominated him for uh, my office's um, Letelier Moffat Human Rights Awards, named after two of my colleagues who were assassinated in, in on Embassy Row in Washington in nineteen seventy six by um, General Pinochet and the, the fascist Chilean government. But he received our our Human Rights Award back in two thousand and seven. And now he's a member of uh, he, uh he's well that at that time he was a member of the Senate and now he's president of the country which is not a bad accomplishment for someone who used to be a, a an m19 guerrilla uh, although he never fired or shot in anger he was part of the political wing of that and he was amnestyed after they they they, they negotiated a, a peace with the government but yeah interesting background not your typical Latin American president and it's true of of a number of countries so in Chile you've got a very progressive young president. President Boric, uh, you've got Lula back in power in in, in Brazil, um, so there's a a pink wave uh, in Latin America, if you will, uh, of, of progressive reformers. Exciting time!
0: Tell people how to find you online. You're uh, you're you're still on you're still on that uh, that that bird site, but you've got to be other places too.
2: Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at uh, at Sanho Tree, um, and I'm also on Blue Sky uh, as well under. My name's Anho. So those are the places I tend to hang out these days
0: online. Very cool. Um, Any closing thoughts for the listeners?
2: Uh, You know, uh, we need more ground-truthing. We need more more independent evaluation of these kinds of programs. I'll give you an example. In uh, the mid-2000s, I was in Putamayo, Colombia, near the border with Ecuador and the Amazon and uh, we were going to tour a palmito processing plant built by USAID Money. Palmitos are hearts of palms, the things you get in salad bar, you know, they're kind of expensive, high value item. And they were supposed to can it and export it. And so they knew we were coming. They set up a visit for, for my delegation. Um, and then as we were going through, the, uh, the workers whispered, to, uh, several of them whispered to us, this is all fake. Um, this is set up just to, for your eyes. Uh, In fact, they burned the bridges, local community. They've, uh, you know, broken their promises with the farmers. The farmers won't deal with them anymore locally. This factory has been idle for months. And what they did is that they went across the border to Ecuador, bought hearts of palm from Ecuadorian farmers, processed them uh, for us, for our benefit, um, and hired back a few temporary workers in Colombia uh, and passed that off as a successful development project. This is, you know, um, this this happens, this sort of thing happens and it it needs to be checked out and and ground truth and people held accountable. And and so many of these countries like Colombia are are absolutely blessed with resources. Right. If you had to if you were playing God and creating the earth, Colombia would be one of the absolute gems. Um, It's got deserts and jungles and mountains and beaches and savannas and emeralds and coal and gold and land and Incredible biodiversity They're capable of producing tremendous wealth except that you get a very corrupt political system and class structure um, And they are very good in Washington um, talking to people who are like them um, And looking after their their class interests But imagine if we actually listen to farmers and and put them, uh, you know and, and put poor people or average people at the center of these policies They could do very well for themselves.
0: That was my conversation with Sanho Tree, Director of the Drug Policy Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. Among other things, we were discussing a report by Harm Reduction International on overseas development assistance monies being used instead for police and drug enforcement, entitled Aid for the War on Drugs. Find out more at the Harm Reduction International website, hri.global. That's hri.global. And for now, that's it. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Free Culture Radio. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. I thank my guests Sanho Tree. Many thanks to everyone out there fighting for civil rights, human rights, and social justice. And thanks especially to you, dear listener, for your support. You make it all worth it. Free Culture Radio is available as a podcast or direct download. Links are at the website, kboo.fm slash free culture. We'll be back in a month to continue our examination of drugs, drug cultures, and the influence of drugs on society. Thanks again for listening. This is Doug McVeigh saying so long. So long!